The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. And we continue our study of the discourses of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And we see, as we were reminded by the video, that the context of Jesus' teaching on these discourses to his disciples, the context is this movement of multiplication of disciples. He, he began, Jesus called 12 in the book of Matthew. He called 12 apostles or disciples to himself. And he spent all this time pouring into their life, teaching them and equipping them and sending them out. We saw last week the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, the very last words, the resurrected Jesus. He gathers them, he meets them at the mountain. He says, now go and make all disciples and I'm with you As you go, I'm always with you. Now go and make disciples. And so we want us to always remember, as we study these teachings of Jesus, these five discourses of Matthew, or these five uh, sermons of uh, of Jesus in the book of Matthew, is places where Jesus sat down with his disciples and he began to explain to them so many things about what it means to be a disciple, uh, what they're going to face as disciples, uh, that they are to, he's going to send them out and, and say, now go and, and share the gospel about the kingdom. And he's going to explain to them how to do that, what they're going to face and what to expect. He's going he's to give us parables explaining the mysteries of the kingdom and why sometimes people don't respond to the gospel. And then he's going to, in the last discourse called the Olivet Discourse, he's going to say, now here's what you're going to see before I return. And so these teachings are, are very helpful for us in our own personal life, but I'm afraid that we're going to miss this forward thrust, that we have been sent by the Son of God, that we are a part of this multiplication movement. Why are we learning these things? Why was Jesus teaching his disciples? Because he knew he was raising them up to send them out, and that's what we're trying to do here. That we want to go through the study of these discourses because it is training, it is equipping material for us as we have been sent out to make disciples. I've learned something in discipleship. I've learned a discipleship principle and I call it the need to know principle. People learn best when they're in a need to know situation. Uh, If I want to teach you, Kelly, if I want you to learn how to pray, I'm going to say, Kelly, come up here and next week you're going to offer a prayer to the whole church. And you're going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to know how to do that. And I'll say, oh, she's very teachable right now. And so if we put ourselves in in need-to-know situations, we find ourselves suddenly very teachable to learn how we do what you've asked us to do. Well, the Lord, the Son of God, has sent you out and sent me out to make disciples. So whether we realize it or not, we're in a major need-to-know situation. And so that's why last week I gave you an action step. Does anybody remember what that action step was? Yeah, anybody have a notebook today? Whoa, look at you, gold stars everywhere. So easy action step was to go and get a notebook. Because we said, hey, if the Son of God is speaking to us, then we need to be taking notes. We need to be paying attention. Maybe you're sitting in here, because let me tell you how the Lord talks. When we're reading the Bible, whether it's privately or whether it's corporately, or we're looking... The, 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 the scriptures oftentimes will just hit you like a ton of bricks. Maybe a certain verse, a certain thing related to the text will just hit you. Well, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you and convincing you, hey, this is for you, especially. Write that down. And then you are in a massive need-to-know situation. 
That's when you go to your community group leader and say, look, I think God has told me to say this to my friend, or I think God has told me this, or I tried this, and it was awful. Let me tell you about this week. Each week, I'm giving you action steps, but before you get to action step, I'm obeying them myself, so I'm in the shoes you're in. So this action step this week, you can write it down, this week, your action step is this. Ask one person in your life to describe a Christian with three words. Say, hey, describe to me your view of Christians in just three words. And so I said, all right, if I'm going to ask them to do it this week, I'm going to do it the week before y'all get the assignment. So this week I have this on my mind and I'm thinking, I really have a motive in this question. More concerned, I'm, I'm, I'm less concerned with the answer. I'm more concerned with getting you to begin to identify people in your life and you to begin to engage them in conversation beyond, hey, did you see the eclipse, right? Okay, we want to start to have engaging encounters with people that will lead to possibilities of them being invited to a Bible study, them being invited to church, or them being invited to, to follow Christ, whatever part of that spectrum they're on. But we want to create action steps to begin to challenge you. And it's going to make you uncomfortable. I was very uncomfortable this week doing this. And so it's very revealing that both of my examples are in a doctor's office. I don't know what that says about my life right now, but I was in a doctor's office in both situations. The first one, I asked the lady, I said, so I got a weird question for you. I was a little more comfortable with her because I always kid with her every time I come to this place. It's a chiropractor and I'm, on, I'm in there a lot. And so I was like, hey, I got a question for you. And she's like, what's that? I was like, describe Christians in three words. And she was like, gave me all the great Jesus answers. So I was like, she's like, well, I'm a Christian. So I would describe them as faithful and, you know, whatever. She described it right. She described very churchy answers. The next time I did it. This guy was helping me get glasses. Yeah, I got glasses. And I, I yeah, okay, what does that tell you? Backache, going, okay, got it. All right, so I, I'm like getting my glasses and, and uh, I noticed the guy had a little tattoo of a cross on his finger. But just the way he was talking, the way he was acting, I wasn't sure that, I didn't think he was probably very involved in church. And so I said, hey, and you can do it this way. You can blame it on the pastor. I kind of blamed it on the pastor. I said, hey, listen, I'm a pastor, and all of our church, I gave them an assignment. And I told, I'm going to tell them to ask someone to describe Christians in three words. So let me ask you that. How would you describe Christians in three words? And he's just like, wait, what? And I said, how would you describe Christians? Just three words. And he gave me uh, pretty, good, pretty uh, positive answers. He said, well, they're nice. And they're, uh, they're always on time. They're responsible. And he said something out like that. And I was like, oh, okay. And I wasn't sure what I thought about how this whole exercise went. And then he says, but I'm all that and I'm an atheist. I said, whoop, there it is. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. And then he jumped up from his chair and he went into paperwork. And I was like, he doesn't really want to talk more about this. But he did want to get that in there. And so I was like, all right. Well, I said, well, I noticed you have a cross on your finger. You tattooed. He goes, yeah, I was young and dumb once. And I was like, was that about the tattoo or was that about the cross? And I think it was about all that. He was like, yeah, I was young and dumb once. And I was like, really? But he was clearly sending me signals. I am done with this conversation. And I was like, that's cool. And so I wrote in my notebook, pray for this dude. Whether I need it or not, I'm going to go get my glasses adjusted. And I'm going to go see him again after I've been praying and after my community group's been praying. And I'm going to go back and say, tell me more. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be scared to death, just like you're going to be scared to death. But the Lord has said, go make disciples, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And so we are not letting off. I know you're thinking, I hope this passes. And he goes on to some other idea. It's not passing. Get your notebook. Some of you hadn't done step one. Get your notebook. It can be an iPad and an app if you want. But I got a notebook and it's already helped me have a better quiet time. It's already paying some fruit in my life. All right. So we are making disciples. That's what Jesus is doing. Making disciples. And so we come to Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 through 6. The beginning of his sermon on the mount. Which is his first discourse. They call it the sermon on the mount. Guess why? Because it's a sermon on the mountain. He sat down on the mountain and he preached a sermon. And so they call it the Sermon on the Mount. Here's, we're going to look at just the first few verses uh, this week and the second half of it next week. The, the uh, verses we'll look at are 1 through 6. It says in Matthew 5, 1 through 6, Seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up to the mountain. He sat down, which was the posture of teaching that day. Uh, and his disciples came to him. And so the disciples are near. The crowd, the, the massive crowd who had been following him and seeing the miracles... We're watching and listening, and so I think that's a model for what we're doing in here. Last week, if my math was right, I think we had about 70 or 80 guests in our two services. And so I view what we're doing as equipping disciples, and we have a lot of guests listening. And our prayer is that as we equip the disciples, that all hear and that the Lord will make disciples and bring more people to himself. And so here's what he said as he sat down and taught them, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And I'll keep going. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, teach us this morning. Help us as disciples understand the nature of the blessed life in your kingdom. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so... In your mind, as you hear, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, what does blessed mean to you? This is a real question. I want to hear some answers. No, don't, don't worry about right or wrong. I've got a theory that that word does not translate in our culture. What does blessed mean? Favored. Favored? Okay. What else? Come on. There's no, I'm not going to slap you down and say that was the dumbest answer I've ever heard. <laughs> Favored. Blessed. Blessed are, blessed are. Happy? Who said that? Who? Me? Frank? You nailed it. Got the right answer too early. Does anyone else think happy when you hear blessed? I mean, is that... Some do. Well, the literal translation, who he probably read the commentary. Uh, the literal translation of markarios, the Greek word for blessed, the more literal translation is happy. But translators don't like to translate it happy because... In our culture, that word has come to be more of a psychological feeling that kind of ebbs and flows with circumstances, right? Things are going good, I'm happy. Things are going bad, I'm not happy. And so it seems to be very fleeting. But literally, it's happy. And I want to reclaim it. I don't think it's fair for us to just give up on this concept of happiness because that is what we all search for, is happiness. 
We all want to be happy. And Jesus starts his training of his disciples right there at that bullseye saying, let me tell you how to be happy. Let me tell you who the truly happy are. Let me tell you how to experience and who I describe as the blessed, the divinely happy, the divinely blessed people. Those people who are truly blessed. And he describes them in his verses. He wants them to know this is the truly blessed life. But blessed does does not just mean some... It doesn't just mean the the super spiritual uh, favored, though that certainly is. is, You can be translated to those who are of the fortunate of God, those who are the favored of God, those who enjoy the blessings of God. But it's not less than that, but it's all of that to include our emotions. There is something at the emotional level that Jesus is saying is that if you want to be truly divinely happy, I'm going to describe the happy, blessed life. So I would define this blessed as a deep, divine satisfaction and joy imparted by the Spirit of God, which accompanies the approval of God or the right standing with God or being in right relation with God. It is probably closer to our understanding of the word joy. If you're like me, I think of joy as something that transcends circumstances. It certainly is more like that than a happiness that is fleeting. And so it's a deep inner divine blessedness given by God that transcends circumstances. In fact, it's a joy or happiness that can be experienced in these verses we see. It's experienced in the midst of grieving, mourning, and persecution. So he's saying, listen, I have a blessedness, I have a happiness, I have a contentment, I have a satisfaction that I offer you that is present even in the midst of deep mourning and grieving. That is present even as you are being persecuted and treated poorly. I offer a blessedness, a genuine divine happiness that transcends this world. He's got their attention. And the twelve sit. And Matthew, remember who Matthew was. We kind of imagined Matthew last week as this uh, prideful, powerful tax collector who's smart enough and and sharp enough to have worked his way in culture up to, to work an agreement with the Romans that he would be a tax collector where he was getting rich and powerful off his Jewish brothers. And he was, but he was raised as a Jew. He's a Jew. He was raised to be taught and memorize the scriptures, to, be, uh, to know the scriptures. And this, this one who was working it to his advantage, he was rich and powerful. He knows the scriptures and he sees Jesus arriving on the scene and he realizes, man, this dude's fulfilling scriptures. He's fulfilling all the Old Testament. Perhaps he really is the Messiah. And, and as he is going, ultimately, he is being humbled and he is being broken as he realized this is the Messiah and I I hope he doesn't see me because I am filled with shame over my sin and what I've been doing in my life. And then Jesus walks to him as we saw last week and he looks him straight in his eyes and he says, Matthew, follow me. And 
Matthew thrilled that Jesus would accept him and invite him. He, he jumps to his feet and follows Jesus. And what does he do? He throws a party. And who's at that party? He's making disciples. Out of the joy of the grace that he's experienced in Jesus, he throws a party with all his other rich, powerful tax collectors. And he says, I want you to know this Jesus. And so he is a great example of one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus going, I got a lot of questions though. And Jesus is teaching them. And Jesus says, let me first of all start with what we all long for. We all long for happiness. We all long for contentment and satisfaction. And Jesus says, let me describe that for you. The same understanding of happiness is a biblical concept that we see in the very beginning of Genesis when God created man and woman. He nestled them into the garden. He blessed them. God is pictured in the Bible as the one who is the source of all life and blessing that God is the one who sees what is good and gives it. That's the concept of blessing and God nestles them in the garden providing all their need and they are happy and content and filled with the blessings of God because they're with God. They are right with God and they're walking with God and they're living under His kingdom. Language is the New Testament, but it's His rule. It is His, His will and those who are in His will, walking with Him under His divine authority, are experiencing the blessed life, the divine happiness of God. Because God in Himself is happy. God is a happy God. God is a divinely, perfectly content, satisfied God. He made us in His image and He says, I want you to know this. I want you to experience this. And as long as they and we will live a life in, in submission to His rule, His will, His kingdom, whichever word you want to use, as long as we are in a loving, trusting, obedient relationship with Him, we enjoy the divine happiness of God. But what they do? They had an alternative offer. Well, maybe I should go outside the will of God and be happy and it didn't work. And so Jesus comes back and says, let me tell you how to have that happiness. Let me tell you how to be happy. And he offers them the blessedness of God, the happiness of God. So blessed is a divine inner happiness, joy, peace, comfort, satisfaction that is only given by God. Now, where is the world thinking happiness, the blessed life is found? How countercultural is this message? What was Matthew, the, the disciple, thinking just days before Jesus showed up? If you were to ask Matthew, hey, describe the blessed life, it'd be like power, money, comfort, ease, entertainment, retirement, all these things that we all know if we don't guard against it, we're caught up in it too. And so this is a very counter-cultural message. But Jesus is saying, listen, I have the secret to happiness. Now to understand his message, we've got to look at some verbs. Isn't that exciting? Grammar teachers are the only one that thinks that's exciting. The verb. Look at the verb tenses. The first thing we need to notice is the present tense verbs in verse 3 and verse 10. This is very, very important. I wouldn't bore you. The present tense verse in verse 3, Blessed are those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right now, it's theirs. 
Down in verse 10, the same structure, same verb tense. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what's going on here? This passage is broken up in like a paragraph at the beginning and the end. The structure all the same. Jesus is setting apart a unit and he's saying, listen to me. All these blessings belong to this group of people. And that group of people are those who are currently members of the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying this is their current assurance. So the blessed life belongs to those who are members of the kingdom of heaven. And then he sandwiches within that six promises that are future verbs. Six future blessings that those who are members of the kingdom of heaven will certainly enjoy. Look what he says those future blessings are. Beginning in verse 4 and following, he says, They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. So those who are truly blessed are members of the kingdom of heaven currently, and they will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be satisfied. They'll receive mercy. They will see God, and they will be called sons of God. That's the gospel message. Sinners who don't deserve anything will be Comforted, They will inherit the earth. They will receive mercy. They will receive the title sons of God. So Jesus is saying, this is the blessed life. This is what I want for you. This is who you are. This is what you look forward to. But we're not done looking at verbs. There's one more, the present tense again. Notice the blessing, the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are is present tense. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Currently, those who are poor in spirit are currently blessed. Divinely happy. Verse 4. Those who currently mourn and grieve are currently blessed. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. All these are present tense descriptions of the members of the kingdom of heaven who have been promised incredible future blessings. That's the blessed life. That's how he describes the people who are participating in the blessed life, and it is so contradictory to everything that our world is saying. And so he's reprogramming the mind of his disciples. He's recalibrating how we define life. This is what the message of the Bible is about the nature of the kingdom of God. It's strange. It involves lots of different phrases of describing this concept that the Bible says that we who are in Christ 
are citizens of his kingdom, though we live on earth. He says, look, you're foreigners in your own land. This is not your home, for you have a greater citizenship. He says that you are to be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah, you live here, but this is not who you are. And theologically, he says, when you trust Christ, I declare you as righteous. I will make you live out that righteousness progressively because you're not really yet fully who you are, who I've declared you to be. But one day you're going to be fully righteous. And so it's filled with these strange concepts that Jesus came the first time and he said, the kingdom of heaven is here. Oftentimes theologians call that the kingdom is inaugurated or the kingdom has already come, but it is not fully here yet. It will one day be fully consummated. It's, it's already, but not yet. We are declared righteous, but we are going to be fully righteous. We live in this world, but we are not of this world because we have a new world that Jesus is bringing back. And so this is a very strange countercultural concept. And the disciples are just sitting there going, do what? And so he says, get your pens out and write this down. Because if you forget this, if you think that this is your world, you will be lost and you will be scattered and you will have doubts and you will think that I'm not speaking the truth. Don't ever forget these concepts. Jesus has incredible wisdom for us to learn. And so he says this blessed Life is to be enjoyed to a certain extent now. That yes, there is comfort to be fully comforted one day. But even now we begin by the Spirit of God to experience the comfort of God that that comforts us in all of our grieving. Even now we begin to experience those future blessings to a, a certain extent even now. And to the extent, like in the garden, to the extent that even now... To the extent as Christians that we repent of sin and and place ourselves under the reign and rule of God, our King, we begin to experience all those future realities. We begin to bring them into the presence. We bring His comfort. We bring His hope. We bring His righteousness. We bring His grace and mercy. We, We experience all that He has for us as we lay ourselves under the reign and rule of Jesus. And so it is now and forevermore in increasing measure that is the life of a disciple. And that's the divine blessedness of God. That is how we are to be happy in this life. We're not going to find it anything else. We're not going to find it in possessions. We're not going to find it in entertainment. We're not going to find it in sport. We're not going to find it in religion. We're only going to find it in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so he's saying this is a whole new way to think about these things. This is what it's like to be happy in this life. So finally, when you look at one last aspect of this message, who is it that enjoys this blessedness? How does he describe them? Look at verse 3. Again, blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This week, those all are referring to our relationship with God. And we'll look at the next four next week, our relationship with each other. So here he is describing members of the kingdom of heaven who enjoy the divine happiness of God and blessedness of God. And he describes them that way. 
He describes them as those who are poor in spirit, mourn, meek, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. Does that describe you? That should be what we do this week. Lord, does this describe me with our pens in our hands and our notebooks open? Lord, your word says that those who are members of the kingdom of God, those who are participating in the divine blessedness of God, are described as those who are poor in spirit, mourn, meek, and hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that is such a different message than I hear every day. I look on the websites. I listen to the radio. I watch TV. Lord, does that describe me? What does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does it mean to mourn and be meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness? I think the simplest way to look at it is John Stott calls this a spiritual progression of relentless logic. If you are a logical person, you love this. This is a spiritual progression of relentless logic. Each step builds on another. Poor in spirit leads to mourning, leads to meekness, leads to hungering and thirsting for righteousness. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? This is not referring to your bank account. It's poor in spirit. In fact, our tendency is to make this about our bank account, our possessions. Throughout church history, people have always wanted to make this something that they could do in their own strength. If I can do something that makes me fit the category of poor, then I can make myself acceptable with God. And people throughout ages have sold their possessions, moved into monasteries and Uh, abuse their bodies by not eating because of these verses. It's poor in spirit. He is railing against the religious elite, the scribes and Pharisees who took the law of God, the will of God, the reign and rule of God and said, if you do enough good things, you can be right with God. Matter of fact, in chapter 5, verse 20, he is railing, and we're going to look at that text later in our study, He says, I tell you this. So to people who've been trying to build a righteous life by going to church, giving money and doing good things and not doing bad things, people who think that's going to get them enough righteousness with God, he says to them, there's the best. The people who do that the best are the scribes and Pharisees. I mean, they're the super spiritual religious elite. Jesus says, let me tell you something. To his disciples sitting around him, the crowds are listening. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. At that point, what do you think? Anybody who knew a scribe and a Pharisee, who knew that they had memorized the law, who looked like crazy committed to keeping the law, when they heard how good they were at the law and they heard Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sure their heads went. And that is the best step. Poverty. Well, if I, if I got to be better than them, I'll never, I'll never be good enough. Now we're getting somewhere. The poor in spirit are those who know I have no righteousness to offer to God. I am 
bankrupt spiritually. I cannot lay my going to camp every summer at the altar of righteousness. I cannot lay my my offering of money as a, a way of meriting some righteousness with God. I cannot lay that I'm doing every action step Tracy tells me at the altar and say, that makes me righteous. No, no, no. We have to come to the Lord's throne and say, I'm empty-handed. I'm broke. I am bankrupt spiritually. That's the first step in that progression that he's describing, that those who are bankrupt spiritually then mourn. The bankrupt spiritually mourn and grieve their sin. They grieve the sin. Matthew, who came to Jesus, surely he was grieving and mourning. I have sinned against you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I know. I know. Not only do they grieve the fruit, the the sinful acts, committing this sin or that sin, saying these words, or treating someone bad, or not doing what I should do. I mean, there's just count infinity ideas of how we sin against others and sin against God, the, the acts that we do. But we even grieve the fact that those are just that's just fruit of the root sinful heart. And it grieves and it mourn. We mourn and say, I am I am so bankrupt spiritually that even my good deeds are laced with pride and wanting glory and wanting attention. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying. Listen, my people, my true disciples are not these loud and proud Pharisees. It's the poor in spirit who grieve their sin. They mourn their condition. And that produces within them a very beautiful meekness. What is meekness? Meekness is not a personality trait. Meekness is not walking around, woe is me, I'm no good. It's not an inward, quiet personality. Meekness is a correct view of oneself in light of God. Meekness is understanding God is holy and I'm not. And it produces within me a, a willingness to be, as we'll see next week, our relation to others. That when I know who I am in light of Christ, certainly I'm understanding when you sin against me. I restrain any, any power I might have to exact revenge. It, it's a proper understanding that I have a log in my eye before I'm going to go worry about the speck in yours. And so it produces a meekness because it's a right view of my standing in relation to God. But we don't stay there. We don't just stay wallowing in our misery and our sin and our our grief over how wicked I am. Praise God that this progression leads to the final stage, which is hunger and thirsting for righteousness. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's seeing the righteousness of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and saying, I have no righteousness, can I please have righteousness? I long for it, I hunger for it, I thirst for it like a man stranded in the desert who had eaten or drinking, and he will do anything it takes to get it. Seeking righteousness becomes the goal of their life. 
Does this describe you? Jesus says, this is what describes those who are members of my kingdom. This is what describes my disciples. This is how we need to know. This is the life of divine blessing. And it's so different than what we think in our flesh or what we see and hear every day. And it's counterculture. It's counter to culture. We should look and feel and think radically different than the world. So Jesus is saying true happiness, a divine happiness or blessedness is enjoyed by his disciples. And his disciples are not those loud and proud, self-righteous, arrogant, religious people, but they're the humble and meek who have confessed their sin in the holy presence of God and they have turned to His mercy and His grace and by faith have received His righteousness, His divine approval as a gift through Jesus Christ. And it changes who they are. It changes the way they treat others. It changes everything about them. So perhaps you're here today and you're like someone in the crowd who's come and you hear the equipping of the disciples. Yes, this is available to you right now. Yes, you can, you can have it all changed in an instant. Trust Christ alone and he'll declare you righteous and launch you on a journey of becoming who he's declared you to be. For those of us who are already in Christ and we are his disciples, do we realize that this, this whole message is the gift that we have? This is the full understanding of the gospel, which is good news. This is what you have to offer people. It's what everybody's looking for. Everyone's looking for happiness. Everyone's looking for blessedness. Everyone's looking for contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment, peace. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. I think there's a country song or something for that. And you have the answer. Your message is not, you're a sinner, look how great I am. And then you say, well, I'm not great, so I can't go share that message. It's not how it works. Message is, I'm a sinner, look how great he is. If you can connect with me on that, I got an answer. You're called to go and make disciples. So this week, I'm challenging you with a scary action step. Identify someone in your life. I don't want you to try to go outside your normal routines to find someone. They're in your life. That's why God has saved you and brought people in your life. And I want you to think about it. Is it your coworkers? Is it your children, your family member? Is it, is it that same grocery clerk worker you always see at the grocery store? Is it your barista at the coffee shop? Is it your yoga person on the mat next to you? Is it that person that you usually go to and gripe to about everything? You know, who is it that God has put in your life and you're just going to say, I'm going to engage them with a little different conversation and you can blame your pastor. You can say, look, my pastor's got us doing this stupid exercise. But I want to ask you something. Three words to describe Christians. And just see where it goes. And afterwards, if something happens and you're scared to death, just go, okay, I'm going back to community group. We're going to talk about this and we're going to pray. The Lord's going to provide everything you need to make disciples. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.